0: Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? Or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the
1: world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. SUFFERING STEVE Ditko. Here, what about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, Provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. (laughs) Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out.
0: Excellent!
1: Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This is week seven of Wet Hot Mutant Summer. And this week was a story of your choice. So I'll let you go ahead and do the intro. Uh well today we are reading
0: Generation Next, numbers one through four. This is the Age of Apocalypse version of Generation X. So when all the X-Men series got cancelled and entered the Age of Apocalypse and you got the alternate version of the characters for like it was a bunch of four issue miniseries that made up that whole event. Uh, this is the one that was focused on Something resembling the cast of Generation X.
1: If there's any listeners who don't know the gist, the most simple, quick summation is basically that in 1995, the X line suspended all of its normal titles for about four or five months and replaced them with a tale of an alternate reality where Professor X was killed, and that just got the ball rolling to a dystopia where Apocalypse was essentially reigning over the Earth, literal human genocide all over the place, and the X-Men in opposition to him were led by Magneto instead of the now-dead Xavier. And basically... It's a timeline thing. No one remembers the way that the reality was supposed to work, except for Bishop, who tells Magneto about life as it's meant to be, aka the normal Marvel Universe, and much of the plot going across all these books concerns Magneto and his forces trying to restore the proper reality. And then, like you said, Generation Next is the Gen X book, and Gen X is just another New Mutants-type book that's about the younger generation of students at the time.
0: Yeah, and the weirdest thing about this is Generation X had existed for exactly four issues before the Age of Apocalypse happened.
1: So Four issues... If
0: you, These are all, like, very new characters, and we're immediately getting these very different, like, alternate versions of them. Like, most of them were introduced, well, I guess it would have been about a year before this in Phalanx Covenant, but they appeared for, like, two, maybe three issues of that, and then the four issues of Generation X. And now we have, in some cases, alternate versions, in some cases, characters who are all new ones who are like characters who will eventually show up later in Generation X, or in one case, winds up not having an Earth 616 counterpart at all.
1: Yeah, and we'll get, I think, a bit more into that as we go, in terms of at least my personal feelings of, I guess, just like disruption of reading Gen X and it being interrupted so quickly by this, but... The creative team here, I'll go ahead and just do the roll call real quick. We have Scott lubdell as the writer. Chris Pachalo is the artist. Mark Buckingham on inks. Steve bucoletto and Electric Crown on coloration. And then Richard Starkings and Comicraft on lettering. So pretty much... An extremely famous person in each of their fields or specialties on every single aspect of the creation of this book. Yeah. Uh, although I would like to add a
0: hearty fuck you to Scott Lobdell. Um, and I want to confer friend of the pod status onto Chris Bacillo.
1: Idol of the pod.
0: Um, I mean, I picked this basically because I wanted to talk about something AOA. Because I think AOA is actually really cool. Like, as someone who is reading through all of X-Men, 95 is rough. It's really, really starting to drag. And then Age of Apocalypse happens. And and Legion Quest right before it as well. That whole storyline suddenly gets really good for a minute. And then right afterwards, it goes back to being bad. But there's this really great bit right here. It is very disruptive to Generation X, though. I'd recommend if you're reading Generation X to not even bother reading this, at least not where they put it in the trades or anything like that, because it, it doesn't really, There's because of the alternate universe thing, there's no connection.
1: Yeah, like I would say, either if you're reading Generation X, just read Generation X through and don't necessarily worry about this but obviously read this when you're reading Age of Apocalypse and getting the full story of that. The only way to read Age of Apocalypse, I think,
0: is sitting down and reading the whole thing. When I first read it, I read it in, like, release order. So I, I basically bounced between each series, like, almost every issue. And, yeah. like, that worked really well. <laughs> it's a really cool event. Uh, Oddly enough, I couldn't cover... um. I thought it would be a bit much to say, oh, let's talk about, uh, what were the, like, six miniseries plus Alpha and Omega, or whatever it was called, so, like, 25, 26 issues. It's a thick omnibus, yeah. So, I picked this because Bartolo art, basically.
1: Yeah. Considering how much time we're spending on X-Men this summer, it feels appropriate that we're hitting on an AOA book because of just what a big deal it is in everyone's memory and i think what you said about 1995 sucking is part of that because it's not just that this was a fun story but it's that it was a brief period where everyone went oh wow the x-men can be great again in the midst of a bunch of stuff that simply is not fondly remembered you know, like, it's one thing to be a good story among good stories, but this was sort of arguably, I think it's probably fair to say this was the most critically successful X-Men comic since Jim Lee and Chris Claremont left. Like, I don't think there's really anything else that would compare between the two.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of, like, Executionist song, but, like, it's, it's not as good as AOA was. Executioner's song is, like, fun and silly. But, yeah, like, AOA, it, especially, it's a line-wide thing. Like, all of a sudden, the whole line was good. I mean, the first four issues of Generation X are great. They're better than this is, to be honest. And I think this one's really good. Like, this miniseries, I think, is really cool and interesting. But, like, the whole, the line as a whole was not in a great place. And then this story happened, and this... Whole
1: event is just very, very cool. Exactly, yeah. Like, just, like, a very successful sort of shake-up. And the whole literally canceling everything, alternate reality, yada yada, sort of helped, I think, add stakes to the story, too. In a way to sort of help counteract what a stasis the franchise was in. Because just with the dystopia of it all there was a certain amount of freedom and what could happen in the story i think is fair to say you know it all is very no holds barred and there's some very grim things that happen here that wouldn't be allowed to happen in a book that was going to have to be dealt with in normal continuity
0: yeah, it's it's got that, like, perfect mixture of the alternate universe version of these characters, so they don't actually matter, and we can kind of do whatever we want to them, and, like, the fact that you're watching these things happen to these are technically still a 616, because it's not an alternate timeline, but a rewritten timeline. Yeah. So there is still stakes in that you're like, well, now not only will they, like, they need to fix this. But also, like, if they don't, all these characters I like are, you know, either, like, dead or monstrous villains, or in very small cases, still reasonably functional X-Men. But, like, yeah. Like, basically, the whole New Mutants cast show up throughout AOA as psychopathic villains. Like, almost all of them are just awful for some reason in this. I don't know why they chose, like, that group in particular. Uh, but, like, Cannonball is in Factor X, which is the X-Factor replacement. And he's helping run the breeding camps that Mr. Sinister has set up. And Karma is in um, the Excalibur, which is x is in, like, the caliber of a bullet. And she's also, like, murdering people. Um, Danny's somewhere as well, and she's also murdering people. Uh, so we open with uh, essentially it is your classic X Men Danger Room opening. Uh, where you have Jono, who is still called Chamber in this universe. Um, he's a little different from the regular version. So basically, the regular version of Chamber has, um, when his powers activated, it exploded his the lower half of his face down to like his chest. Out with like flame but it's psychic fire I think they call it psionic flame or something and like whenever he it's not like a thing that can heal so like he doesn't have to breathe or anything like that because of his power and he's able to like throw telekinetic stuff. This version for whatever reason when his power is activated they didn't blow him up.
1: I guess it's part of Just sort of the general motif of being like, let's imagine how these characters could look and live differently in a different circumstance. So of Chamber, it's kind of like, okay, what if his power manifestation weren't so traumatic? So he basically just shoots his flames out of a contraption in his chest but he's retained like his face and everything
0: yeah it's it's a common like theme amongst uh all of the characters in this who are also members of generation x which the generation x characters you know you've got O, whose power like massively disfigured him when it activated you've got husk who in the mainline comics has a hard time controlling her abilities at this point. Uh, you have Skin who shows up later whose power has made him look like grey and flappy, but he doesn't really have like the ability to use it very well, again, in a 616 in the regular timeline. And in AOA, all of these characters have far better control over their mutant abilities. At this point in their lives. Than they do in the regular universe. Like this is a group. That in this version. Has been training from a much younger age. And they've all. Like been working together. For a while. There's a lot more history here. Between the team members. Than there are actually in the regular universe. At this point.
1: It's also very much like. Skill as necessity. Because beyond just being a what-if, it's a calculated sort of expression of selling what the new locale is like and how dystopic the Reality Warp is because these characters essentially have no choice but to train much harder and get much more skilled more quickly or else they will simply literally die. Survival of the fittest. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the, the weird thing about Age of Apocalypse is Apocalypse is barely in it, but the whole like the whole event is driven by that ethos of just like I've really really misunderstood how evolution works and now I'm going to inflict that on everyone else.
1: Honestly, I think it works. It's really it's, cool. Yeah, I think it works to the events benefit that it does that because it sort of allows the focus to be more on sort of like that thematic idea than necessarily in getting super hung up on Apocalypse as a literal character. He can just sort of be a specter and an idea that they have to fight against. To be honest, with a few exceptions, until
0: Apocalypse became a wife guy, he's really quite boring.
1: He is generally quite boring. I there's a
0: couple really good comics with him in it, but like AOA is much stronger for having him in it less.
1: Yeah, I think the real high points for the character are AOA, X Men Evolution, and then like twenty years later in the Krakoa stuff.
0: Yeah, that's mostly it. I think he's fun with the original Simons and stuff in X-Factor, and I rather like him in the two uh Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries. But that's that's it. That's all that I've enjoyed. So back to this specific comic. Um basically the opening is a danger room sort of training fight between Chamber, the previously mentioned Husk who um her power is she can like rip her skin off and have different things underneath it uh in the main universe at this point she's mostly able to just sort of turn into like different materials but she like isn't very good at controlling it whereas here she's able to use it to shapeshift to an extent that she just can't in the regular universe she and chamber are very much dating in this version which like That is a long tortured romance that dominates a lot of the plot of Generation X. So some things remain the same.
1: Yeah. And beyond them, we've got Mondo. um, Earth Guy? Yeah, Earth Guy. Like, he can sort of, like, phase into and like, disrupt and, like, attack through the ground, but also through buildings. Like, his whole deal is sort of just, like, merging into surfaces and, like, morphing them around to, like, drop people and sneak up on people. It's quite a strange power set, honestly. We have those three. We have... You already mentioned, um, skin. And we have Vincente? Yeah, or Vincente, I'm not sure which it would be. And I'm not really sure what his deal is, because isn't his thing that he's super minor and 616? Like, he's just, like, a minor, like, servant of Mplate or something like that? Like, a super nobody character?
0: I was just Googling it, and yeah, so... He shows up in a later set arc of Generation X, like the 616 version, who's just like, yeah, he's working for Mplate, and he's shown up in, like, three issues. One of the many things I think that was probably just, like, a, a dropped Generation X thing.
1: Yeah. Since
0: that, yeah, like, from what I've read so far and from what I understand winds up happening there's like a lot of things that Lobdell sets up that he never really gets around to paying off before they kick him out.
1: Yeah. The Monet situation, the most, I suppose, like consequential of all. And her whole deal plays out so differently from the intention editorially. And here we have a character named Know-It-All who is... Like, clearly sort of meant to be analogous to Monet, but between just retcons and how everything plays out, she's effectively just sort of an AOA-only character.
0: Yeah, I think she's meant to be one of the twins who were meant to be fused together to be Monet. Probably. But, like, yeah. She looks cool. Yeah, wired into machines and stuff, and is like able to like project her image into places and stuff like that. Like the character design is pretty neat, and it's got it looks to me like the tech she's sort of wired into stolen from Apocalypse. Like there's a bit of a like vaguely Egyptian aesthetic to it that I really like.
1: Yeah, and notably missing here in terms of Gen X. It's not just the standard Gen X team, because we're missing, at least off the top of my head, Jubilee, who's off in a different book. Sink is just dead. Emma Frost and Banshee are both occupying different roles in different books, sort of just selling the whole, like, this is analogous to Gen X, but it's not entirely the same, because... The plot and alliances being a bit shuffled up as part of the point. And in place of Emma and Banshee, we basically have Kitty, Pride, and Colossus as the teachers in this timeline.
0: Yeah, and and this is like the really scary version of Kitty and Colossus. Um, Like, this version of Kitty has attachments on her arms that give her Wolverine claws. Which is actually pretty sick. I wouldn't mind- Like, they're doing, like, this new ninja aesthetic for her in, like, the fall of
1: X that's coming up. And I'm like, they should give her these again. And they're also very cutthroat. Like, the whole thing opens up with a danger room sequence. And it very quickly becomes the teachers beating up on the students and just refusing to go easy on them. And them coming close to killing basically all of the kids at some point before it wraps up.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting how so these two they are aligned with Magneto and the X-Men, but they have clearly bought into a lot of Apocalypse's ideology in terms of like the survival of the fittest stuff. Um, like they definitely have that attitude with the kids you know they they question why they haven't killed any of them yet in like the combat exercises they're doing and stuff like that and so the plot really gets rolling though so magneto shows up and he explains what we sort of said earlier about how bishop you know knows about the real timeline and they need a time traveling mutant to maybe be able to go and fix the timeline and some either conveniently or inconveniently the only one who is still alive anywhere in the age of apocalypse at this point because like Apocalypse has been specifically targeting them them the way that he um he's also in other parts of the uh, story like been targeting uh psychics. Because it's one of the few powers that he's actually vulnerable to, so he's been targeting like psychics and time travelers apparently specifically to make sure they are all dead before they can do anything to stop him. But Colossus's little sister Ilyana, who he thought was dead, is actually in a like human slave camp, and somehow Know It All is able to tell that she will wind up with a like time-related mutation, which is. Yeah, because this is this is a version of Ilyana Rasputina magic who has not fallen into limbo, did not age ten... Y- seven? Seven years in limbo? Did not become a sorcerer, doesn't have a sword made out of her own soul, and doesn't have her mutant powers yet.
1: Yeah, she's still a child, young enough that she hasn't yet manifested, but her life is still hell because she's basically a slave in one of Apocalypse's many work camps. Yeah, if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, it's like those mines. Just all kids. Yeah, and and primarily... And Aunt May. and (laughs) It's all
0: kids and Aunt May.
1: Yeah, essentially the thing being that... The work is excruciating and backbreaking and hostile, so people generally don't survive long. So, you know, most people don't get to live to particularly old ages. Like, even most of the adults that are there are fairly young for adults. And it's primarily humans, because part of the whole deal is apocalypse and his forces using enslaved human labor to do like resource mining work and all of that sort of thing for the benefit of the dominant mutant societal structure essentially and i suppose iliana is just sort of lumped in there with them because she hasn't manifested Any power at this point, so for all intents and purposes, she's treated as a human. Well, if she was one of the fit, then she'll survive. And so the rest of the miniseries is essentially the long, drawn-out plan to try and infiltrate this camp and rescue Ileana for this miniseries sort of overarching contribution to the overall events plots of getting a time traveler uh
0: so at the start of issue two we're introduced to iliana who has met up with uh like she's clearly someone who's just been brought to the camp um i can't remember this character's name uh but that she Ilyana has a hide with her in like a little alcove because something called the Sugar Man is coming by. We see his silhouette, and I mean, the thing about Chris Bacalo is when you ask him to draw a weird-looking thing, he's gonna do a really cool job.
1: Sugar Man is like... His design feels like it's meant to be indicative of, like, a literal nightmare. You know, it's very much like, here's a scary monster... As interpreted by a child, he's a character where, like, his head and his torso are kind of all the same thing, and his body is, like, 60% face, and I think he even has, like, an extra set of arms, doesn't he? Like, four arms. It's all very, like, human features, stretched, and modified and added or subtracted to just be like nightmarish sort of inhuman look if modok and jumbo carnation
0: had like a horrible nightmare baby yeah Sugarman doesn't have a 616 counterpart so far as i know he's another one which is like weirdly they've never done that the aoa version does make it like through. He's one of the couple characters from the Age of Apocalypse who wind up in the regular timeline after the event Uh, where he proceeds to become an incredibly exhausting presence who actively makes the story season worse, but uh, he's really great here. <laughs> A disgusting, scary villain for these kids to fight. Unfortunately, after this, they're like, oh, what if he's secretly behind all of the Genosha plots we've ever done? And I'm like, he's running a slave camp. How is he a genetic genius? And they have Dark Beast, like, right there, who's also survived and is also secretly behind a bunch of things now. And I'm just like, why isn't it just all Dark Beast? Sugar Man's just, like, a really gross dude.
1: Yeah, like, he's not really meant in these issues to be a mastermind type of villain. He's just sort of like a cruel monstrosity.
0: He's the kind of person who has been empowered by Apocalypse's regime and is taking full advantage of it to be as disgusting and inhuman and to treat people as inhumanly as possible. Yeah. He's like a really, really good example of like, okay, so this is what this system is enabling. Like the idea of like, well, survival of the fittest, this sort of, you know, genetic dominance-based thing. It doesn't, like, Sugar Man's fairly powerful with whatever the hell his mutant abilities are beyond looking like that. He does seem to be fairly formidable in a fight, but, like, the main thing about him is just that he's really gross, and he's really nasty, and he really relishes causing pain.
1: Yeah. And him, and then also just all the time that these issues spend on just like these camps and their structure really just emphasizing the genocidal aspects of the plot in this series. I think this book sort of leans into it more than some of the other AOA miniseries do because you really just spend like most of the time In the camp and just seeing slaves get killed, you know, like one gets vaporized for just talking to another slave when he's not allowed to. You see slave masters just pushing people around and sending them falling off of a cliff and just a bunch of stuff like that that just very succinctly conveys the gravity of the situation
0: yeah this is really really bleak like it when you initially look at it it's very brightly colored and a lot of the like because it's Chris Bartlett there's a lot of like very cartoony proportions and expressions and then you start reading it
1: and you're like oh this is one of the like bleakest x-men stories ever and it's like the visuals don't detract from that at all you know, like, it never feels like it's undercutting it. But the style is unique enough in its flair. And, like, the coloration is bright and bold enough. And just, like, all the aesthetic choices and the way that the story is delivered. It's done in such a way that, like, keeps the action flowing and, like, exciting to follow. And... It doesn't become just a, like, washed-out, all black-and-white or sepia-toned, just, like, misery fest. Like, it manages to avoid becoming that. Can you imagine if they did this in 2005? Just, like, how
0: brown it would be? I feel like if they did this now, they'd actually do, like, fairly similar stylistic choices. Like, I do think the coloring would be a little less extreme like this is very this is early days like oh we've got digital coloring now and so it does have like all of AOA has this where they're like very very happy that they can do gradients
1: it all feels very electric and even if you have just like the physical books if you were to compare literally looking at the original physical issue of this and like the way that the colors look in the printing compared to say an x book from 10 years before the difference in coloration technology could not be more stark
0: yeah it's it's there's a sudden sudden shift for like i'd say across like a couple years in the 90s is like sort of the books one by one start looking more like in terms of the colors, start shifting to this aesthetic. Uh, That's like very, very fun when you're reading everything chronologically, and you just sort of you know go to the next issue in a series, and you're like, oh, they started. Uh, they, they the colorist got the uh, got a computer. Yeah. Not uh, in this case, electric crayon, which is such a great name.
1: Yeah, I had to search that too earlier and apparently was a very short-lived digital comic coloring company and um the credited steve buccalotto i think was one of the founders
0: well it's a shame that it's short-lived because i think they do a really good job
1: it looks great yeah
0: yeah like there's a couple places where i think they go a little far with like trying to do source lighting like there's this one very strange panel where like kitty's wearing what is very clearly like meant to be sort of a peasant disguise outfit so it doesn't make sense why it looks shiny and has sure. light reflecting off of it but like the vest yeah it, it it this is a really nice comic to look at and of course with barko drawing it you have like on pretty much every page it, it's not that the panel layouts are incredibly atypical. Like, I don't think that he, at least in this issue, is doing anything that goes as far as, like, even his work on um uh the Bendis Uncanny, where, like, stylistically he is just doing different like, further out stuff with the layouts. But all of the panels are just slightly different shapes than you would normally expect, certainly at this time, to see comic panels drawn. Like, you would have a page where like, you know, it's, it's a series of panels and then a larger sort of image underneath, but then two of the panels will stretch up further up top uh, than the others. And then the other one will drop down further so that you don't have like this perfect row, but you have like this sort of messier little stack. Like it's just as clear to read for the storytelling, but it's just a bit more interesting looking and a little bit more varied than what you would still normally get even in like 96 95
1: yeah like it's a willingness to just sort of toy around with expectations and sort of like extend panel borders sort of shake them up so that even when it's basically doing like I guess just so that it adds a sense of energy and variance and and not like chaos to the point of illegibility, because it is all, like you said, very clear and easy to follow. But it just sort of helps enhance that sense of excitement by being willing to take the fundamentals, but make them, like, slightly off-kilter.
0: There's a lot of pages where you feel like it was maybe scripted as, like, a six-panel grid, but then Bacalo, like, clearly just decided, well, I'm I'm just gonna have a bit of fun with the way it's all laid out, and so you've got, like, one stack of panels going down the side, and then a much larger panel next to them, and then more panels along the bottom, you know, And, and they're all, like, slightly different shapes and sizes, and in some, the borders go off the edge of the page and you know this art like directly up to the edge, which like yeah, it it it's really like it's not shockingly different or groundbreaking certainly not with like the hindsight of it's not 1996 anymore, but it's really great. It's so good.
1: it's extremely proficient execution and it really stands out like it's just really effective. And it, I think, probably contributes pretty significantly to why this is one of, if not the most fondly remembered mini-series from the event.
0: I'm fairly certain basically anything that Chris Barcolo draws is like fondly remembered.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Like, I will admit to at least when I was younger, not enjoying his work on the weapon plus arc in um Morrison's new X-Men. But that is the only time I've ever had an even slightly negative reaction to his art. And also when I go back and look at it now I like it more. It just doesn't feel like it stylistically
1: fits with the rest of that series. I remember not being into it the first time I read it, but then going back later being like, oh fuck yeah, I like this actually. And I think part of that is probably that there was sort of a midpoint for him stylistically, you know, where it was significantly different from this 90s stuff, but it also wasn't all the way formed to his present aesthetic. So a sort of a in between that I've since grown to appreciate, but it's very very striking and i would agree i think is largely very different from most of the rest of the visuals than new x-men but um yeah yeah I, i i would agree with with that
0: uh i really love his current aesthetic i i cannot wait to jump forward nearly two decades in my reading and get to the bendis era uh but you know i i decided to do this to myself so i have to read onslaught now
1: you sure do, and but... then
0: I have to read the stuff after on slot, which is probably even worse. But back to an actually good series. Uh, so like basically the plan is that they're all going to infiltrate the camp in different ways. So they have uh Husk and Vincente, uh, working together to like replace one of the sort of, it, this guy is named Quietus, he's a real creep. He's sort of purple and strange looking his face is basically all curls and and curly hair and like nose and droopy face like it's it's a he's a very like there's a lot more visible mutants in this and in most cases they're like working with apocalypse, which is maybe a slight problem with AOA but we'll just not talk about that and so they, basically, they, Vincente turns into a liquid form and then explodes out of Quietus after he gets drunk by him, which is just as nasty as it sounds. And then Paige is able to shapeshift into Quietus's, like, head. But because she's not as, like, big as that guy is, they have, like, Vincente filling out, like, the outfit. Uh, meanwhile, Mondo basically just sort of goes through the walls to get to where Yana is, which is like deep inside the core of it, like working in the mine part of the the camp, which is like somehow, and I don't know how a bunch of people carrying rocks around does this, but apparently this produces all of the like energy used by Apocalypse's empire in America. Like this is a pretty important facility. In like terms of his setup, but it's just like I don't I don't know how it works. And then, in issue three, we have opening I, this is just indicative of the amount of work Barclaler puts in. There's this character who appears in the front who is just like one of the mutants who's driving all the human slaves. and he's got one of the weirdest and coolest looking designs. He's like huge, and he's sort of got brownish orange skin three heads that are all sort of joined together at the back of the skull uh like spiky skin and piercings all over like this is this character i think appears on this one two-page spread
1: and that's it and just looks really fucking cool he's like visually it looks like there's design cues mixing like dog elements with dinosaur spike elements and then there's the whole conjoined face thing and like you mentioned before there's a bunch of visible non-human looking mutants throughout and the book never really you know takes a moment to like deliver a reason why or anything specifically like that um it kind of calls to mind the question of like oh is this in some way intentional as a matter of just like reinforcing to the human slaves just like how different they are you know and of like intimidating them with these jailers who just are very physically Much larger and much more imposing, you know, because while obviously any jailer would be scary, a human looking one will not be the same as a multi headed dog beast looking dude. I think it's like a mixture of that, the
0: like obvious storytelling need of just like you can glance at this image and know immediately like which one is the god because it's the one that looks like a mutant. And then Chris Bacalo probably just enjoying drawing these things.
1: Yeah, that's a great point about the utility of quick visual differentiation, too.
0: You know, and the dog thing has had me uh, thinking that, like, this guy is sort of, you know, towards the outskirts of the facility and is a giant three-headed. And yeah, you're right, there's like a lot of dog, especially in like the nose of the faces. Uh, He's very Cerebus
1: literal beast guarding hell or whatever the mythological thing is yeah
0: yeah he's he's guarding the way into hades which is definitely an accurate way to describe what the rest of this place looks like because it is all rocks and flames and apparently somehow a volcano in the middle of i can't remember which state it is but it's not one known for volcanoes (laughs) we do get a brief sequence where we see um Just, like, two of the human slaves interacting. Uh, One of them is apparently a grandfather, uh, and his granddaughter is, like, asking for some food, uh, which results in the grandfather getting vaporized, and when the granddaughter protests that, like, they didn't have the right to immediately kill him. She also gets vaporized. Like, it's very... The casual cruelty of this place is very much on display throughout the whole story.
1: On the topic of the cruelty, I do also want to mention there are these two recurring minor characters who are also sort of stationed at the outskirts of the war camp, and I don't remember if they state much specifically about how they got to their position, but they're basically... Human species traders who are working for Apocalypse, and every time we periodically cut to them, it's just sort of like one of them having the moral quandary of being like, Don't you feel bad for them? Like, this is terrible, and like, I'm in this position trying to survive. And just get by as, like, a useful jailer of my own kind. But this is still so immoral. I feel horrible. And then the other dude who he's always talking to about this is just like, I don't give a fuck. I got mine. Who cares? I don't feel sorry for anyone but myself. So, again, just more periodic glimpses of just, like, what a hellhole this world is and just sort of the cruelty of even a human in this world displaying that sort of like selfishness and just sort of like that theme and idea of a person who has no solidarity yeah
0: and then the the contrast between the apathy and the like i mean he talks about caring about it but he's still there guarding this camp and not, like, either leaving so he's not involved in it, or, like, doing something about it.
1: Yeah, um, like, he talks about it, but he never does anything to be less complicit or to ever try to redeem himself.
0: Like, being a human in this world, it is
1: sort of
0: automatically a tough situation, but, um, yeah. uh, We do have, talking about, like, people who do do something, uh, Mondo is definitely the member of the team who has like the strongest moral compass so as he's slowly infiltrating the facility uh like whenever he sees something happening he always tries to help someone out like i really like mondo in this and it's like i do not understand mondo as a character in like the main set. everything i have read i'm just like who is this guy what what is happening here
1: of all the characters in gen x Mondo feels the most like there were plans here or something and clearly they changed and he's just sort of a nothing character who's barely around and then when he is it's kind of confusing and yeah he's I feel like there's no understanding Mondo because they just like sort of Tease him, but never actually have like a solid moment to really be like, "Here's who Mondo is and why you should care."
0: Yeah, but like I really like the Age of Apocalypse version, like the god who killed the the grandfather and the the granddaughter. Um, Mondo like comes out of the wall and pushes him off of like a balcony, uh, because he killed some innocent people. And like he's doing this throughout, like, uh when he comes across uh the girl who's like sort of befriended Ilyana, like to whatever extent anyone befriends anyone in this story, um, you know, he's trying to protect her and Ilyana and like refuses to leave about like or what is insisting that he'll come back for her. Um like he's sort of the least touched by the sort of the horrors and the cinema of this world. I, I just, I think it's like an interesting character be, and it's it's, it is very strange how I feel like I know this version of the character better than I know the regular one. And I wish I had the regular one to compare this to, and be like, oh, well, maybe this is different about his history, <laughs> but I, I still don't know Mondo.
1: AOA Mondo is the good Mondo, yeah. And he's Basically, like, the character who is arguably least compromised his morals, you know, because he's still living in this hellhole. He's gotta contend with the danger as much as anyone else, but he just keeps trying to do little thing after little thing to help out, even as he's on this suicide mission.
0: And so pretty soon we get, like, our sort of first proper introduction to the Sugar Man. Uh, um, it's one of those, like, it's the whole subplot where uh, Paige and Vincente are, like, working together to pretend to be Quietus. It's, it's played somewhat comedically, where they're having to, like... Because Sugarman's shown up and they aren't, like, fully kissed it out yet, they quickly run into the shower and pretend to be showering, and, like, Paige just sticks, like, the quietest head that she has now up above the shower and, like, has this conversation with Sugarman through that. Um, At which point, like, it's heavily implied that she fucks Vincente because basically, like, they both, well... She at least is like really scared and like worried about this mission. Uh so they've all noticed how as soon as Colossus sees that the mutant they're going to go save Isiliana, he's kind of just focused on that in a way that isn't like focused on the mission, it's focused on saving his sister. And it's personal him to him in a way that like really worries them all.
1: Yeah, because He's no longer an authority figure who it feels like can be trusted to look out for everyone's survival to whatever possible extent and make like calm decisions. Like it very much feels like at the end of the day, nothing is going to matter to him as much as Iliana, and not because of her plot significance, but just because of the familial tie. This
0: does really tie in very well of what was going on with Colossus at the time that this sort of came out in the regular timeline. Because, of course, in 616, Oyana had fairly recently died horribly of the legacy virus. And at this point, I'm trying to remember if he had... I think he was still... He, he had, out of, like, depression and sadness over her death because also his whole family got murdered in Russia, like right before this happened, Colossus is, like, defected to the Brotherhood and is, like, hanging out in Magneto's satellite with Exodus and the Acolytes, not the Brotherhood, it was the Acolytes, basically just sort of being miserable up there instead of with the X-Men who we just can't handle being around anymore. So, like, I like the the thing that really pushes this already, like, much darker, sort of nastier version of Colossus, which is just the AOA setting, and the fact that his family is also dead in this version, he's dealing with that, like, over the edge, is, yeah, it's the sister. That that focus on him and his family still being the same motivational driver despite, like, the massive change to everyone's histories I think is, like, a really good choice.
1: Yeah, it's a good example of them using the character in a way that both works within the context of the new story while also being an interesting mirror to the regular continuity that is inevitably going to be returned to. And essentially while the kids are all doing various infiltration attempts in the camp split off into their little groups, Colossus and Kitty are on their own as a pair, as well, making their way in. Kitty's
0: able to make them intangible enough that they're able to like float with the wind in there, which is a really cool power usage that I would love to see. Like the older kitty in the comics now figure out how to do.
1: Yeah, that's like, just fun. Yeah, it's like pseudo flight practically.
0: Yeah, like, she can do that thing where she, like, walks on air already at this point. Oh, yeah, because that's, that's like, a Claremont thing. But, um, I just, the idea of her and Colossus just holding hands, sort of floating in the breeze. Um, and so, Chamber and Skin have sort of infiltrated by pretending to be, like, are they pretending to be gods? Or were they pretending to be slaves? I think they're pretending to be gods. Um, uh, but they get When they meet up with, like, the quietest disguised Paige and Vincente, the Sugar Man shows up and he's able to tell that there's something going on and orders Quietus to shoot uh, Chamber in the head because he's realized that Chamber is trying to infiltrate and is, as they say here, a member of the X-Men because they don't call themselves Generation Next. Uh they're like training to be X-Men, and so a lot of the members just are like, oh, we're X-Men, in the way that like Kitty Pride in the regular universe back in the like earlier days was very determined not to be a new mutant and to be an X-Men.
1: Yeah, the generation next thing is just like a book title, not a designation in canon. They're just trainees.
0: And know-it-all contacts Shadowcat and Colossus to um, let them know that, like, several of the kids are in pretty serious trouble. And they're basically like, well, we have to go get Uyana, though. So nothing else is more important than that.
1: They understood the risk. Colossus especially. Because, like, at this point, Kitty's still going along with it, but she at least has, like, displeased faces at how like cold colossus is as he's talking about the rest of them but it's just fervoring the colossus doesn't give a fuck of it all
0: yeah as he says our only priority is securing my sister pause for the fate of the world like it's very clear what his real motivations are here um Mondo finds Oyana, and so they decide to go after them and to help Mondo get out with Oyana, rather than worry about the uh, other members of the team, which is indicative of a choice that will be made the next issue.
1: Yeah, which one strength of the book, all this that we're talking about, is just a four issue mini series. The pacing is brisk the action just keeps pumping i would argue that it doesn't feel like too rushed or anything it's just like and sort of the event as a whole part of like the buzz and excitement of it is just like breakneck speed and pacing to keep interest flowing and enhance the sense of this is do or die time you know the world is fucked and there's just danger all around
0: yeah it's it's established in the other series that um apocalypse is very determined to declare war on europe which is technically not run by him it's just like he has america and then every other nation on the planet has basically united against him and they're going to send an army of sentinels to kill everyone in america And Apocalypse is going to fire off enough nukes to destroy the entire planet. And so every series has this, like, ticking clock. And the thing is, this series doesn't even need that, like, explicit plot point in order to feel, like, really anxious and threatening and frightening. Like, the setting itself, just the camp and just the infiltration attempts and seeing all these kids sort of stumble through trying to do this is, like, nerve-wracking enough that it carries the whole book.
1: Yeah. Although on that note, I will mention a detail at the very beginning of issue four. We get some panels zooming in on a watch that Ileana is wearing of, like, as like, a smiley face design on it. And, like, the minute and second hand sort of like moving across the face and it just immediately makes me think of Watchmen
0: I, that must be a reference because you're right be. and it's even zooming out from a smiley face as well as how this issue opens I mean obviously this is the furthest thing you could get from a nine panel grid like this opening page is made up of triangular panels arranged like sort of spiral-esque, like the shape in which, like, you read them, the way that they radiate out from each other, it's sort of like a rounded, like, it's a very unusual panel layout. But, yeah, you're right. It, it definitely feels like it's a Watchmen reference, which, like, yeah, time time is running out, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. And essentially much of issue 4 has mondo trying to sneak iliana out because part of his weird power situation is that he can just like store things and people within his body so he has Mondo's her so weird yeah and he has her like in this strange cavity in his chest as he tries to like make his way out of the camp because he's like a clearly visual because he's like a clearly visually identifiable mutant so he is trying to just sort of like get out under the guise of no one looking at him strangely of just like assuming he's an employee basically not that that works out well Uh, No,
0: because while he's trying to do that, the entire situation with everyone near Sugar Man goes to complete shit. While Chamber is able to use his, like, psychic abilities that he has to make everyone think that he's died, Sugar Man also immediately works out that, like, Husk and Vincente are not actually quietus, and so everyone decides that it's time to kill them. Basically, like, all of the Different sort of monstrous looking mutants there start attacking them, and the whole thing goes to shit in a real bad way. And when Mondo arrives, saying, Oh, well, I've got Oyana, she's as safe as she can be, he's immediately murdered from behind by Sugar Man, who, using his weird, prehensile tongue, pulls Oyana out of Mondo. Like, I think this first, like, death is very effectively done. Especially since it's kind of the only person here who's, like, genuinely just, like, a really nice dude.
1: Yeah, like... Mondo... is the most, like... root-for-him character. Because, you know, even though everyone... basically sans Colossus, is earnestly trying to do their best in the shit situation, Mondo is that sort of just, like, sincerely, compassionate, like, hopeful presence throughout the book so that him getting got is the most, like, resonant that any of the potential deaths could be, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and it starts the... What I call the alternate universe characters extermination marathon, whenever it happens. Where, well, we're not on the main Earth anymore, so these aren't the real IP, So we can kind of do whatever we like to them, so let's watch them all die horribly.
1: Yeah, because just like, they're surrounded. You know, there's Sugar Man, all his lackeys. They're in the midst of the mine and the camp, and... There's, like, all of the foes that are already there, and backup's just gonna keep coming and keep coming, and it just feels like an endless swarm bearing down upon them all. And so, Colossus is able to save Oyana
0: from Sugarman, and it at least looks like they kill Sugarman, although, uh, as I've already spoiled earlier by complaining about his presence post-AOA, uh, Sugarman is not actually dead. But there's still like this massive swarm of like mutant guards who are determined to kill them, and the whole place just breaks into absolute chaos. And so Colossus, uh, is like nearly killed from behind, but luckily Kitty saves him. And then at his insistence, she does reluctantly agree to help him and Oyana escape first because, of course, the priority is getting Oyana to Magneto. Which, like, Kitty can tell that that's not actually what Colossus is really planning on doing or wanting.
1: Well, it is what he's planning, and it's not really why he wants this to be the priority. Yeah. And she also, very specifically, like, initially tries to be the one who stays behind and is, like, saying that she'll stay and for Colossus to go. But he does the whole, like, reason of, you know, it's better for her or for her power set to be the one to do it, and he'll go back and help. And she begrudgingly is the one to take Ileana, but she's just so aware of how full of shit he is.
0: Yeah, it's noted that when she leaves the first time, Paige is begging for help because Vincente stopped breathing, and, like, Kitty still floats away, but says that she'll remember Paige's face for the rest of her life. Um, Ilyana has like, throughout the the previous issues when we've had any viewpoint of Ilyana, she's always like, hoping that her brother will show up. Um, And she clearly has a bit of a hero complex, like a worship hero worship of him. uh, Much as she does in like, the regular mainline continuity. Um, And so she's convinced that he will actually help the others, but when he goes back, he sees that Paige, the only one surviving, so far as anyone can tell, is currently being mobbed by just a whole bunch of enemies. And Colossus clearly considers for a second going to help her, but then chooses to, to, to close the doors and prevent like anyone from getting to him so that he's not in danger of dying in the fight. He chooses mm-hmm. his own life over hers. Solely because he,
1: does, he wants to be able to see his sister again. Yeah, because there's the whole, like, security doors closing, like, dramatic thing. And, like, his super strength keeping them at bay and, like, peeking through the hole. And him just letting them close as opposed to doing anything to help. All while we get the narration captions over all of the action just juxtaposing Iliana being like he would do the right thing as we're watching him literally choose to not even try and prevent Husk from dying. And so we get the really excellent
0: final page. Um so Kitty and Iliana are waiting by a fire out in the like mountains nearby. And Colossus approaches Katya, Peter where are the others? Peter? I did everything I could, Katya. I'm sorry. Like He lies through his fucking teeth. And as they sit, we see that the Sugar Man is, like, somehow tiny now, question mark, and has survived. And the final four powers are, like, his face getting larger and larger and filling it up Um, as he's, like, sneaking towards, like, he winds up showing up and being like a wrench in Uh, uh, is it a wrench in the? I can't remember the expression I was going to use now.
1: Wrench in the plan. He winds up.
0: Yeah, he winds up showing up later and like fucking things up for the X Men in like the final part of Age of Apocalypse. Uh, but like this really like scary final panel of us, final set of panels of us zooming in on his face. Um, like this final page is just a sixteen-panel grid, and it's like the first time a grid is actually like all lined up in the whole comic, and it's a real sorry a twelve-panel grid. It's a really effective use of, like, that sort of classic grid pacing. You know, like, you have, like, over, like, a Tom King nine-panel grid. Like, it's paced like that, where each image plays, like, so well after another and, like, just really, like, gets the passage of time in this moment. And, like, the pauses between everyone speaking and the emotions of
1: it. Like, I think it all works really well. It works well, yeah, and I think my favorite part of the page is just Kitty clearly not believing Colossus and just these three have survived to just be utterly miserable, and it does not feel like a hopeful ending at all.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bleak. We've been saying this this whole time, but
1: this series is is especially bleak. Yeah, but it is good. I have seen or heard a lot of people talk about it in such a way that, like, I get the impression that this is a lot of people's favorite part of the event, and... It's not mine. It's like, I do think that it's very effectively crafted and it is good. But I think my personal issues are probably just a mixture of nostalgia I have for other parts that I read much younger. And then just having first approached it, reading Generation X in publication order, And immediately being like, oh, this is disrupting the hell out of it, which, you know, someone can make that exact argument as for why it would be a plus instead of a con, you know, because that's the whole point of the event, you know, so it's not even like, that's not a matter of like bad artistic craft by any means, because it simply was what they were doing. I don't think this should be in
0: those Generation X-like trades. There should just be a page explaining AOA. So that, like, just the fact that there's that slight time jump after AOA, and there's also, like, that cliffhanger ending to number four that leads into AOA, is just, like, explained away. Like, it doesn't make any sense to put this in there. It's got nothing to do with Generation X.
1: Yeah, it's... You gotta sort of know what you're reading and when you're reading it. But... So, next week, assuming that the mail tracking information stays true to what it's currently saying and that what I ordered you gets to you on time, next week we will be discussing Uncanny X-Men Annual 2001 by Joe Casey and Ashley Wood as we continue our tour of early 2000s X-Books. Nice. That is one I've not read. I haven't
0: read any of the Casey stuff yet.
1: Yeah, I think it's fun. It is specifically like the New X-Men annual. Isn't it like all the Marvel annuals that year? Because that was like the period where they were theming them every year. Isn't it? It wasn't all the Marvel ones, but all three of the like tentpole X-Men annuals that year were that format. So new, uncanny and extreme that year, the annuals are all the I think they called it Marvel scope, but it's the sort of like widescreen, like turn the comic on the side because the staples are on it's like the paper it's like the same size as like the standard comic issue yeah but the staples are on the shorter length as opposed to the longer length so it's like a wider horizontal viewing as opposed to the more standard like vertical comic reading oh you mean you're not turning it on its side
0: it's um it's it's the the actual like spine of it is on the short edge
1: yes oh oh yeah have you only ever like with like the new one and stuff have you only read it in trade yeah i've only
0: ever read it in that big omnibus
1: (laughs) yeah no it's like presented bound differently so that it's not like awkwardly moving the book around it's like made for the way it looks oh that's so
0: much better I wish there was a way to do that with the book binding, but unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to check out some Joe Casey stuff, and
1: I'm now much more excited about reading a landscape comic. That's much better. Oh, yeah. And like, it's on Marvel Unlimited, but once you see it physically in person and can compare the two, I think you'll see why I wanted you to have the physical copy. Because even in the e-reader, there's just no completely accurately, like, conveying the feeling of the different physical orientation.
0: Yeah, because it doesn't- double page spreads even don't really work reading on a digital thing. That's that's sort of the one problem I've had, really, with, like, reading on an iPad, Um, is you do lose the effect of a double page spread, uh, but- this this
1: will be much the same thing but i'm very excited to read this now that's good but yeah thank you all for listening next week uncanny x-men annual 2001 we'll see you all then and bye bye everyone
0: up.